You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Podcast listener Austin Tinsley requested a Grace Saves All episode responding to a recent John Piper interview in which Piper explicates his view that God has two wills with regard to the salvation of humanity. You can find this interview on the April 7, 2023 edition of the Ask Pastor John podcast. The title of that episode is, If God Desires All to be Saved, Why Aren't They? You can also find this interview by going to www.desiringgod.org forward slash interviews forward slash if God desires all to be saved, why aren't they? I've asked Andrew Horonich to help me respond to this because Andrew grew up in the world of Reformed theology, and so he knows this terrain well. Andrew is a graduate of Liberty University who is now working on his master's in theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. He has a forthcoming book on Christian universalism entitled Once Loved, Always Loved, which should be released shortly by Whipfenstock. Andrew, thanks for agreeing to help me with this listener request to respond to John Piper, and welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast. Glad to be here, David. Well, since we are going to be discussing Reformed theology, Andrew, what was it like for you to grow up in and around Reformed theology? Well, that's a great question. I think it depended on the Reformed theologians that I interacted with, <laughs> right? Some of them were actually quite wonderful. I remember very early on, I was introduced to J.I. Packer and John Piper, right? And as I told you, David, I think that John Piper is a better Calvinist than John Calvin. <laughs> and so uh, reading Desiring God was just, a light bulb went off of me. It was one of the most influential books on me as an early teenager. And uh, reading the works of J.I. Packer was also illuminating as part of my curriculum uh, very early on in high school. And so uh, even now, I still have a very soft spot for Reformed theology. And I wish that certain people who caricature the Reformed tradition would understand that it's a little bit more broad than people make it out to be. So, for example, you either have this view that either you're a hard determinist or you're a soft determinist in terms of Calvinism, in terms of free will. But Actually, there are other options. I think I have actually right here in front of me, David. There's a book. It's called Free Will and God's Universal Causality by W. Matthews Grant. It's a great book in which he is a libertarian Calvinist, and he makes an attempt to show how libertarianism is consistent with a deterministic <laughs> model of Calvinism. <laughs> so all that to say is there are very intelligent people out there in the reform camp who are aware of the rebuttals that are propped up against their position. And I wish that more people were charitable toward the Reformed tradition. So I'd say that there's a lot of good that I still see in the Reformed tradition, although I do not consider myself Reformed. I still have uh, differences, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they I think that they should be treated as such. All right. Well, here's the question that John Piper received from one of his listeners to his podcast, and here's how he responds. The question that Piper got was, Pastor John, hello, and thank you for this podcast. First Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says, God desires all men to be saved. He desires that end, but not all men are saved. Does that mean, one, God will not do what he wants to do, or two, God cannot do what he wants to do? It has to be one of these two options, right? And John Piper starts his answer this way. 
No, because what the Bible shows over and over again is that there are, in many cases, two wants, W-A-N-T-S, two wills in God, not just one. So it's not accurate to say that God will not do what he wants to do, since in choosing to do what he does not want to do, he's doing, in another sense, what he does want to do. It would be superficial to jump to the conclusion that God is schizophrenic or double-minded or perpetually frustrated because, in the infinite complexity of God's mind and heart, there are always there are ways that he experiences multiple desires, layers of desires or wants or wills, in perfect harmony, each expressing some aspect of his nature in proper unity with other aspects. Let me illustrate what I mean when I say the Bible repeatedly points to these different levels or ways of wanting or willing in God. For example, now in 1 Timothy 2.4, the text that Tim is asking about, Paul says, God desires, that word is thalei in the Greek, which means wills or desires, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But he does not save all. Now, why not? Everybody has to face this, not just certain groups. Everyone who believes, as all Christians do, in the wisdom and power and goodness of God would say that the answer is that some other will or some other desire or commitment of God takes precedence over the desire for all to be saved. I think everybody would say that. One group, sometimes called Arminians, says it's because God is more committed to our free will, our ultimate self-determination, than he is to saving all. The desire to preserve human self-determination takes precedence over the desire for all to be saved. That would be the way an Arminian would describe it. The other group, sometimes called Calvinists, says that God is more committed to glorifying his own free and sovereign grace than he is to saving all. Now, I think the second answer is right. So let's just pause there in, uh, in Piper's response. And what do you make of that so far, Andrew? Mm. Well, first, I want to start off by uh, reminiscing about something that John Wesley, the Arminian prince, right, or the prince of the Arminians, uh, once said when he was asked if he would see George Whitfield in heaven. Wesley answered, quote, I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him, end quote. This is very much the way I feel about John Piper, despite our disagreements. Among men born of women in our time, John Piper is one of the greatest. This does not, however, remove his theological statements from scrutiny, all of which should be brought under the authority of scripture and the eye of reason. Now, John Piper's statements remind me of the compatibilist Harry Frankfurt, who in defense of compatibilism distinguish between first-order and second-order desires, the latter of which includes the desire to have or not have second-order desires. An example might be one where someone's first-order desires are that he eat a piece of cake, which I'm trying to work on my diet this summer. <laughs> um, <laughs> yet his second-order desires are such that he is on a diet and wants to restrict the consumption of unhealthy foods. There is a clear conflict between first- and second-order desires, which can be resolved in one of two ways by bringing one's first-order desire into line with his second-order desire, whereby he no longer wants to eat the cake, or by bringing one's second-order desire into line with his first-order desire, possibly by convincing himself that there are nutritional values in eating the cake. Jerry Walls actually utilizes this distinguishment between desires to further his argument for eternal conscious torment in his book, The Logic of Damnation. But digressing, I have reasons for seeing Frankfurt's distinction between first and second order desires as problematic for Piper's argument. If it is the case that universalism fails to offer an adequate display of the glory of God, as Piper assumes, then as Tim Stratton asks, quote, why would God even have a desire for something, such as universal salvation, that would detract from or, 
negate his glory, end quote. On the other hand, if Piper insists that God cannot fulfill both of his desires, quote, then it seems that he is not omnipotent unless God's glory and universal salvation are logically incompatible, end quote. To maintain that it is logically impossible for God to achieve both his desire for glory and universal salvation would be to minimize Christ's atoning sacrifice. Such a view, quote, entails that Jesus merely picked up part of the check and left the unconditionally hated non-elect to pick up the rest of the tab and suffer the holocaust of hell into the infinite tor- future, end quote. Christ's atonement thereby becomes a necessary but not a sufficient condition for salvation to be effectual for the elect. Indeed, quote, without being irreverent, when divine determinists praise Jesus for all that he has done, should they not also take a moment to thank the damned in hell as well, since they could not have been saved without them, end quote. Obviously, such conclusions are absurd but it is hard to see how they do not inevitably follow on a deterministic view where God damns yet one soul to hell. I would also add in defense of the Arminian that I think Piper overstates the opposition. The Arminian's concern usually is not a defense of Patrick Henryan freedom, give me liberty or give me death, as R.C. Sproul opined. Rather, libertarianism is necessary, as far as an Arminian can say, to preserve something more fundamental namely the goodness of God and the opportunity for genuine relational love between God and created persons. Well, um, when I was thinking about this response that Piper gave, I really focused in on that phrase that he said, uh, everyone who believes as all Christians do in the wisdom and power and goodness of God would say that the answer is that some other will or some other desire or commitment of God takes precedence over the desire for all to be saved. I think everybody would say that. I actually kind of like that. And that, you know, he's just, from his point of view, he's just saying, I think that uh, all Christians should just go ahead and admit this. Uh, So he says, you know, so I would kind of agree. I think it would be most accurate if all the non-universalist Christians would simply admit that they do not believe that it was ever the highest intention of God to save all human beings who would enter God's creation. So I think the free will Arminian camp could just say, no, it was never God's highest will to save all from the beginning. It was God's highest will to grant humans the possibility of terminal failure, knowing that of their ultimate spiritual demise from the beginning. And that's a part of the free will sort of gamble that God made in creation or the necessity. And I think the Calvinist camp should just say, as they do, no, it was never God's highest will to save all from the beginning. It was not even God's will to grant some of humanity even the slightest possibility of ever achieving salvation. So um, the Calvinists usually will say at least it's the highest will of God uh, to manifest God's glory. And not to save, and not to save all. Um, but I, I also wish that Arminians would also say it is, in a similar way, God has a higher purpose than finally saving everybody, and it has something to do with their understanding of freedom. But God has specifically made a universe in which God, with foreknowledge, knew because of some way of granting liberty that all would not be saved. Also, Piper says uh, um, that it would be superficial to jump to the conclusion that God is schizophrenic or double-minded or perpetually frustrated because 
in the infinite complexity of God's mind and heart, there are ways that he experiences multiple desires, layers of desires or wants or wills in perfect harmony, each expressing some aspect of his nature in proper unity with other aspects. And so to me, the answer that there is an infinite complexity in God opens the gate to a completely inscrutable God who is not guided by any single motive, like, say, for instance, love. So Piper's solution is to mask, I think, incoherence in ineffability, resulting in what to me is a terrifying vision of a God who can make a creation knowing in advance that it will create horrible outcomes for those who come into it by no choice of their own. So I think it's simply a logical and moral conflict to say that God is all good while simultaneously being the first cause of a creation which is not going to be good for all. And I think that the the um, the also that one thing I'll just say that Piper seems to think that well all Christians you know admit that it's not the highest uh, order of God not, it's not God's highest will to save all. And when he says that, um, well he's just excluding. Christian universalists, because we have no problem saying that. And we have a tradition and we have a place in the history of the church. And I, I know that, like what you said, I don't know that Piper has ill will in his heart, but he is acting. He is acting in his response as if we don't exist, because he says he thinks all Christians would certainly admit that it's not God's highest purpose in order to save all. No, yeah. I mean, if um, Piper's truly being uncharitable, that would mean, therefore, that a universalist and a Christian is just a contradiction in terms. Yeah. And uh, I, in fact, I watched, um, as I told you, his uh, sermon on the insufficiency of hell, where Piper is very well aware of universalists. In fact, Piper talks about George MacDonald and about how growing up George MacDonald was one of the influences until he read about how George MacDonald loathed the God of Jonathan Edwards. And of course, uh, Piper is an Edwards enthusiastic follower. And so when he heard that, he had to Chuck George McDonald. And so Piper is very well aware that universalists exist out there. I just don't know if Piper thinks that one can be a Christian universalist. Yeah. I. It seems not, at least from the way you <laughs> phrased it. It seems like the way from you phrased it, the way you phrased it there. All right. Well, let's go on. Let's go back to what John Piper is saying. He says that uh, Calvinists, he notes, say that God is more committed to glorifying his own free and sovereign grace than he is to saving all, that he thinks that's right. And he continues one of the reasons uh, I do think this is because of what 2 Timothy 2, 25-26 says. In 2 Timothy 2, 25-26, Paul says that we should exhort sinners with patience and gentleness, and God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, which is a phrase from back in 1 Timothy 2, 4. In other words, the reason some people believe and some do not believe is not because they have ultimate self-determination, but because God may or may not grant them to repent and believe. It's a gift of sovereign grace. So God wills that all be saved, but in another sense, he does not will that all be saved. One of these inclinations is a real expression of compassion, and the other is a real expression of sovereign wisdom and the freedom of grace. Now, I'm going to come back to that with an illustration from history that might make it a little more intelligible, but let's keep giving illustrations of this idea of multiple layers of willing or desiring God. Here's another example. He commands, you shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13. His will is that people not murder. That's God's will. But Acts 4, 27 to 28 says that Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, in murdering Jesus, they all teamed up and murdered him, did, quote, whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. 
God planned the death of his son at the hands of murderous, wicked men. Our salvation hangs on this reality. This is at the center of the gospel. This issue of God's sovereignty over sinful men is at the center of the gospel, not some marginal theological dispute. God's will that his son be murdered took precedence over his will that people not murder. Bible students for centuries have been have seen this and have called these two wills by various names like will of command and will of decree. Another set of phrases is moral will and sovereign will. So let's, let me stop there and ask for what response you've got to that part. Yeah, I think it would be helpful for listeners if we actually read 2 Timothy 2, 25 in context. So in context, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 reads, quote, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Ironically, Paul's advice as to how a young pastor is to conduct himself is superfluous, one might think, on compatibilism. On compatibilism, it takes a work of effectual grace to open the eyes of God's elect. Thus, they will repent regardless of the pastor's temperament and impulsiveness. Notice, furthermore, that Paul says that per God's granting of repentance, those the pastor interacts with may come to their senses. Paul does not say that God's granting of repentance to them will bring them to their senses. Without a proper exegesis of 2 Timothy 2, 25-26, Piper automatically assumes that by grant repentance, Paul, or whoever the author is, means effectually grant. Yet other commentators suggest that Paul merely means that God may grant the opportunity for repentance. In any case, the universalist could very well assume that repentance is effectually given and still hold to universalism. God would thus effectually grant repentance to all persons eventually. Piper has yet provided no scriptural passages to the contrary. He has merely assumed that not all persons will be saved. Yet, as Leighton Flowers has said, quote, We do not have a problem saying that repentance is granted, insofar as all good things are ultimately from God. Paul asks his readers, quote, What do you have that you do not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which strongly implies that all our abilities, including the ability to make a choice to repent or to trust in God, is given to us by a gracious creator, end quote. God granting repentance to man is not the same as saying God chooses who will and will not repent. We are granted repentance insofar as God provides the means by which we may believe and repent, just as we are granted our next breath insofar as God provides the means by which we may or may not breathe our next breath. Thus, when we find elsewhere in the book of Acts that, quote, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life, Acts 11.18 and 2021. We do not presume God has effectually caused a pre-selected few from among the Gentiles to repent, but that God has provided the means for repentance among the Gentiles by sending them the gospel through the likes of Peter. There is also a concern when Calvinists generalize God's activity by identifying how he acts in specific cases in order to bring about a critical event for salvation history and then assert that he acts this exact way in every individual case. This is a complete non sequitur. Occasionally, the police will set up a sting operation in order to convict drug dealers, but this is not the only method they use when it comes to the war on drugs. Likewise, pointing to how God brought Paul to the faith and then claiming that this is how God brought you or anyone else to the faith is, I think, a bit of a stretch. Well, I was uh, I was thinking about this section of what um, Piper had said, and so according to Piper, God wills that all be saved, but in another sense, he does not will that all be saved. 
one of these inclinations, he says, is a real expression of compassion. And the other is a real expression of sovereign wisdom and the freedom of grace. And I thought about this, and this just seems to me that this is a way to make something incoherent sound like it makes sense. On the one hand, God wants to save all. But on the other hand, God does, doesn't want to save all. Well, I agree, I agree that the part where God does want to save all is an expression of sovereign wisdom and the freedom of grace. But I would say that the part where God does not want to save all is a real expression of inexpressible malice because it inevitably condemns people to eternal torment or separation. And this is a denial of a God of real saving grace. And this is a picture of a God of unimaginable cruelty, especially when all of this is combined with the doctrine of limited election to salvation in which the non-elect have zero chance of ever being saved, thereby being doomed to external extinction or eternal conscious torment at the worst. So as far as the example of Christ being crucified by people who murdered him and that and that meaning that it was God's will that those people murdered him, I would simply say that God necessarily allows, in foreknowledge, a great amount of liberty for people to go against the way of love in God's good creation, but that God, in foreknowledge, anticipated the evil which would be unleashed and ultimately planned to heal all of this by submitting to it in love. So God allows for his children to go against his will, but God, in foreknowledge of what would happen, made a provision to use that very rebellion as part of a plan to bring healing and restoration to everyone. So those were just some of the thoughts I had with that section of what, uh, with what Piper had to say. No, yeah, I think the, the key argument that he's presenting, at least in this section, to me seemed that repentance is effectually granted, but we all know that not all repent. Therefore, um, right, these people weren't effectually granted repentance. But I think the problem, for, as far as I can see in that, is I don't think repentance is effectually granted, right? Um, and so I have a problem with Piper's exegesis. I think that God grants the opportunity to repent. It's not that God effectually causes people to repent. But even uh, even if God does effectually grant repentance, that means he effectually causes people to repent. There's nothing that I found in the passage of the Piper side here that excludes Christian universalism. He hasn't yet made an argument that not all persons will be effectually caused to repent. So that's just one of the problems I have thus far is, first of all, Piper is not really exegeting these passages. He's just plopping down verses, and he's assuming that not all will be saved without actually demonstrating it. Well, that thing about being effectually, you know, called to repentance, I've had the idea that so God creates, if we are God's children, then we have an inward orientation towards towards home. Uh, we, we have, we're not just random. Uh, we have a Godward orientation that's part of the Imago Dei that is in us, that's granted to us as children of God. So um, God, in a sense, is not forcing us to repent, but by the very nature of who we are, once we realize the error of our ways, and once we see things clearly, we will want to, I like that word to think of that, the Greek word metanoia, to have a higher, to think higher, to think better, to think more clearly of it. And so the truth uh, sets us free because we have an inward orientation and a direction that our freedom goes. So it's not that God forces anything on us so much as that God since we're God's children, uh, we, we already 
we already have a direction that we are created to go as part of God's good creation. Yeah, it's interesting from a Reformed perspective, too, which uh, Calvin speaks of the sensus divinitatis, right? The, the sense of the divine within us, uh, the sense of God. And beyond that, I mean, Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Uh, Piper himself elsewhere says that uh, when he's talking about the Westminster Confession, that uh, we that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Karl Barth, another Reformed figure, he likes to speak of God's humanity. We're not just humanity, we're God's humanity, right? When we speak of God, we should speak of God's humanity. When we speak of humanity, we should speak of humanity's God. And so um, there, there are all these strands within the Reformed tradition that point to this idea that we are made for God. We're made for union with God. And the idea that ultimately some will be kept from that union is, I think, quite horrifying. <laughs> right. And, and you make – this one of the things I really enjoyed about your book. I, I, mean, I'll some, I think I even said it a little bit earlier that – you know, eternal torment seems much worse than annihilation. But you point out in your book that, well, that's pretty, pretty horrible to deny a, a child to ever truly have the vision of the truly loving parent who called them into existence from nothing. You know, if you just think of that sort of dereliction that that or that God could suffer that kind of thing without being absolutely and totally eternally devastated by that situation and that loss. Um, so I like the way you pointed that out in your book. No, yeah, I, I appreciate it. I, in fact, David, my favorite chapter in writing the book was actually the chapter on Reformed theology, because I hope it's clear to listeners that I don't have an axe to grind like certain universalists do against Reformed theology. Uh, my goal in my book is not to make you the type of universalist I am. I want to make the different traditions better universalists. So I want to make Calvinists better universalists. I want to make Arminians and Molinists better universalists. And I think that universalism is entirely compatible with Calvinism. So if there are Calvinist listeners out here, you don't have to deny Calvinism per se, but you might have to deny certain species of Calvinism, such as the one that John Piper presents. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about your method is you don't tell people to stop being Calvinist or Arminian or Molinist or even open theists. You just say, hey, look at – why don't you think about taking your tradition and just doing it in a little better way? Yeah. And, and, and you can get to a Christian universalism with, with really preserving an awful lot of what you've already got. No, abs absolutely. In fact, I had one um, Calvinist who read my book, especially that chapter, and I presented him, as we'll later see here, an argument that I made for universalism based on Calvinism. And he told me it was the most persuasive argument he has yet heard for universalism. And so that just goes to show that this is a Calvinist who was attempting to convince on Calvinist premises. So rather than convert him to libertarianism, I sought to work within that system in order to still bring him to universalism. And so I hope that other universalists can try to do the same with other Calvinists that they might meet. Well, I think you're an example of a, a non-combative <laughs> Christianity. <laughs> it's not like you're trying to can tear down everything that they have in their spiritual the in their theology. It's like you're just saying, "Hey, look at this and this and this and this. What about this that seems latent in your theology? Or what mm -hmm. about this? And if you bring mm -hmm. this out and you put this together." You know, I can see things in your own tradition that if you put them together, bring you to the verge of a Christian universalism. 
No, exactly. I uh, to all you Calvinists out here, I am here to make you a better Calvinist. Right. <laughs> that that is my goal. <laughs> all right, let's continue on. Uh, Piper right or says. Here's the third example of these two layers or levels or kinds of willing in God. You shall not bear false witness, Exodus 20:16. God wills that people tell the truth and not be misled, not think false thoughts, and not deceive others. Yet in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, it says, People refuse to love the truth and, be sa- and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They believe what is false. They speak what is false. They think what is false. Paul says God sent this delusion as a punishment. God's will that people believe the truth and speak the truth is subordinated, in their case, to God's other will, which is manifest in his sending them further into deception. Here's another example. In Ezekiel 33.11, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Yet God often in the Bible justly takes the life of the wicked. Isaiah eleven four, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. He does not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is, he does not desire it. Nevertheless, he brings that death about. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32, 39. I'll pause there. What responses do you have mm. now? Now, I think it is curious that he cites 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, because it's also a passage that I cite in my book to make a particular argument. It's here that Piper gives no acknowledgement to the debate since the time of origin of a four as to what qualifies as wrongful deception. As for myself, I am of the view that wrongful deception involves withholding information from another who is rightfully owed it. Um, thus, I, I want to give this example. David, have you ever heard of the movie The Princess Bride? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you're going to like this ad- example. <laughs> thus, thus, in the case of The Princess Bride, when Wesley engages in a battle of the wits with Vicini over the kidnapped Princess Buttercup's life, I hardly believe that Wesley owed it to Vicini to tell him that he had poisoned both the goblets as well as developed an immunity to the poison. Likewise, if a group of thugs held up a bank full of hostages and Clark Kent volunteered to deliver food to the hostages and thugs, I don't believe he owes it to reveal to the thugs that he is also Superman. For God to wrongfully deceive those mentioned in Thessalonians would be for him to owe them the truth, but such are individuals who have previously, quote, refused to love the truth, end quote. Thus God's sending of delusion is consequent to their initial rejection of the truth and absolves God of wrongful deception. As far as Piper's other claims go, I believe most Christians would agree that God at times does uh, permit things he otherwise would not want to, all things being equal. But some Christians, such as Thomas J. Yord, who's a very good friend of David Artman, (laughs) might demur. (laughs) Well, Thomas J. Yord is an open, well, he does open and relational uh, theology. And, you know, this kind of gets me into, I guess, learning to be more charitable because I understand the urge for people wanting to say that there's freedom and openness, and maybe my position sounds more closed and restrictive. So, you know, he would say that God bears with people, you know, never gives up, love never, love never stops loving. And so I appreciate that about, I appreciate about that, his theology. And I think that even in an open theism, like you're saying, there's a good, there's a good chance that all ultimately would be saved. 
No, yeah. Um, on that topic, I just watched a podcast actually recently. It was about a couple, four or five weeks ago, where Greg Boyd seems to be coming out more and more as a convinced universalist. So, for example, he was expositing Revelation 19, and he's of the opinion now that what's destroyed is not the persons per se, but institutions and the sinful nature. And this is a drastic change from his book, Satan and the Problem of Evil. So here we have probably the most well-known open theist who's seemingly no longer an annihilationist. And that's what I garnered from my personal conversation when I got to speak with Greg Boyd and then also from comments made by James Bielby and others. And so if this is true, I mean, this is a this is definitely a death blow to those who say that open theism and universalism cannot be brought together. All right, well... You know, when I thought about all of this, um, for me, the key when I think about just big picture things is Lamentations 3, 31 to 33, and this just came to mind. And so I think about this for these passages all the time. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. So whatever judgment or grief or consequence or destruction God brings, it is never what he does willingly or happily, but like a loving parent, ultimately as part of a corrective measure to bring about the well-being of the child. And also, even though I believe that salvation has an individual sense to it, it also, in my view, has a collective dimension. It's not just about whether or how, or how I will be saved. It's about whether or how all of us will be saved. So humanity ultimately is a single body destined to be recapitulated. In the Greek, the uh, anakephalia sosthai, uh, recapitulated in Christ, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.10. So in a way, maybe what God is doing to, to some of us uh, in some type of corrective way is part still of a larger way of bringing all of us to some greater unity or realization. So it's not just about what happens to this person or that person. When I think of salvation now, it's what what is finally happening to all of humanity? What are we as, as humanity learning on our way to being recapitulated in Christ? No, yeah, I think uh, the example that I often use is of the parent-child analogy, whereby if my child is disrespectful to another children, a child and bullies that child and manhandles that child, um, perhaps if I believed in corporal punishment, I might you know, spank the child in order to spur my child on towards the good and to see that there is value in one's neighbor, right? And that that neighbor is a child of God. Um, I would say that in the demonstration of an act of justice, such as corporal punishment in that situation, it might be that my goodness is being manifest. But if, on the other hand, I was to say, kill my son, (laughs) then I I have not spurred him on towards the good. And this seems way out of proportion with his action. And so in that case, it seems like it's at odds with my goodness. So I think here I'm reminded of Eleanor Stump, who in Wandering in Darkness, she asked the question, does God hate people? And she said that I think that God's hating of people can be compatible with God's loving of people. If it is such that God willing ill for that person is ultimately to spur that person on towards the good. And I think that's absolutely true in certain occasions where we see people who are very proud, they're very stubborn, their hope is in themselves. And yet when they are humbled under the hand of God, and because God wants us to be holy more so than just happy as we think of happy in our secular terms, then I think God's goodness is manifest. So I think that Eleanor Stump is right, that God can will uh, will ill for someone 
as well as willing the good for them at the same time. Yeah, the and, and like I said before, this once you start, once you pull the lens back and you start to think, oh, this is what it, it's not just about me learning my lesson in life. That humanity as a whole. I mean, every lesson that you're learning is a lesson that I'm ultimately learning. Every lesson that I'm learning is a lesson that you're ultimately learning. We're all, as a human family, learning and seeing, you know, what we are doing and what's working out and what's, you know, what's not working out. And uh, I don't have to do everything and you don't have to do everything because humanity is doing, we are doing everything and we're all seeing together what happens. And, um, I think the, it just makes me feel really happy and hopeful to think that none of this is wasted, that none of these lessons, especially the painful ones are, are going to be, are going to, that there's, even in the worst that happens, there is some lesson, there is some goodness that's buried in there that will ultimately be exhumed and made good for all to see. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, Romans 11:22, I believe, where Paul talks about, behold, the kindness and severity of God. And some would say that the severity of God is the opposite side of the coin of God's kindness, right? That they're they're one and the same. And so um, I can see how God's knocking Paul off of his horse, right, uh, per se, is an act of severeness, severity, as well as of kindness. But what if instead of knocking Paul off his horse, God say, you know, tortured this man for 30 something years, right? And afflicted him and then, you know, tossed him into hell for eternity. I don't see how that is equivalent with God's goodness, right? With his kindness. And so I'd say that we have moral intuitions that show us that while certain actions are severe, they may in fact point towards the kindness of God. But those same intuitions point towards other things being at complete odds with God's kindness. So it's important to note that as a universalist, I'm the first to say that I am not against the idea of God punishing people. Right? I think it's pretty clear that God does punish people, and hallelujah, I'm glad he does. Because if not, I think it would be worse for these people on the whole that they would continue to live apart from God and not get to experience the supremely worthwhile happiness found in God. So as of yet, I have found nothing in Piper's remarks that I would say is at odds with universalism. Well, you uh, you talked a little bit about your own experience of paying attention to your own moral intuition. And I think that well, like one of the things that I see in you that makes me so hopeful is that your moral intuition is intact and has not been damaged by your Christianity. Um, <laughs> and I think sometimes what happens is that people's people have to dumb down their moral intuition in order to make their Christianity make sense. And when you dumb down your moral intuition, that has corollary negative effects in all kinds of different directions. But to me, like I'm looking at you and you're you by your Christian universalism, it seems to me that it has heightened your moral, your moral intuition. And and it's helped you to realize that, yes, my moral intuition can be a guide. I can that there that I can pay attention to this. No, I mean, absolutely. I think that we need to listen to our moral intuitions. It's, It's funny you say that. It reminds me of a Christian apologist named Frank Turek. Right, who I have some problems with his methods. Who, uh, when he likes to debate other atheists, he'll talk about how their moral conscience points to this. Right, their, your moral conscience is pointing to the fact that this is wrong. But then they all they often reply, "Well, my moral conscience says that eternal conscious torment is awful." 
And then he'll say, well, but you're totally like, you know, you're depraved, you're sinful, you can't trust your moral conscience. <laughs> so, so I ask, which, which is it, right? And so it's important here, David, that uh, I think Piper, he's not like other Calvinists who sometimes they'll point to something called skeptical theism, right? Well, they'll say, well, we just may not have access to God's reasons for permitting something like eternal conscious torment. I just don't think that works. Um, as people will see in my book, one of the reasons I think is that skeptical theism, it, it may work in a context where we're explaining a finite evil, right? Uh, an evil that we say, well, this person is going to experience supremely worthwhile happiness. They'll be fully compensated, right? I don't know how this finite evil works out, but I can trust God that you know it will work out in the end. But it's much harder to take that approach when it comes to an infinite evil that makes it worse on the whole that some person A existed. Um, I don't see how skeptical theism works in that case. But as we'll soon come to, David, it doesn't seem like Piper actually takes the approach of skeptical theism. All right, well, let's continue on. Um, Piper says, here's one more example of these two wills in God. This example may take us most explicitly into God's soul. At least I have found for myself and for many people that Lamentations 3, 32 to 33 is really illuminating concerning the nature of God and how his willing works. Here's what it says. Though he caused grief, though God caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For it is not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now, this is really amazing. God does cause grief. God does afflict the children of men. But then it adds, not from his heart. That's a very literal and good translation. Now, what are we to make of that? He wills to do it, but he does not will to do it from his heart. You can see why I say that the Bible over and over points to the mind and heart of God as complex, willing one thing, willing also that this other will not be put into action. And this is not owing as it would be, say, in our case, to external forces. Nobody's twisting God's arm. All of the wisdom and all of the moral realities that form God's choices come from within God himself. So what responses do you have there? Now, there was some that I would actually say that I am in partial agreement with John Piper, but there's one thing that I found interesting was that this was one of the passages that was very instrumental yeah. in becoming to Christian universalism. <laughs> so what's ironic like, really? is that you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> refer to this passage. Go it, ahead. it reminds me of presuppositionalists who will use Acts 17, which is a famous you know uh, classical apologetics method. And they'll say this supports presuppositionalism, right? So you use your opponent's strongest passages to support your own position. <laughs> so this seems to be what he's doing here. And so, but notice he starts at verse 32. Well, I, I want to back up to verse 31. Well, of course you where, do. Um, exactly. <laughs> How did you know, David? Where um, the author says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now, I, I think it's really telling that Piper omitted the first verse. I don't know. I don't, I, obviously, I can't read minds. I don't know his reasons for doing so. But I think that if one backed up to verse 31, it helps to better illustrate what the author is intending in the following verses, where he says that the Lord will not cast off forever. And that's exactly my view, is that God doesn't cast off anybody forever. Nobody is cast off from the Lord. In fact, though he causes grief for a time, he will show compassion, right? Or he is showing compassion through the grief that he afflicted. And so I think that in removing verse 31, Piper actually makes it harder to to understand verses 32 and 33 in context. So again, I'd say to those who are 
have read Piper actually this um video they talk about David Piper has a small booklet called Does God Desire All to Be Saved? Right. And he repeats yeah. this argument and still sovereign. So he's used this same exact argument in the passages elsewhere. So I just say to the listeners who have read this before to challenge John Piper on his exegesis. While I love John Piper, he's not my pope, right? He's not infallible, and his interpretation is open to question. So yeah, I would say that I just very much question his understanding of Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. Yeah, I just thought that was uh, when I when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, you're <laughs> you're dancing around by taking us to Lamentations 32, 33. You're dancing right around Lamentations 331. And sometimes people will ask me, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And I'll say Lamentations 331. And, you know, invariably, they've never heard of that one. And uh, And so, you know, when I tell them what it is, they're a little bit like dumbstruck by it because, you know, that immediately raises the question in their mind, but doesn't the Bible say exactly that, that that's what God does? God does cast off everyone. Does God does cast off people forever. And if I'm talking to somebody, and a lot of times the people I'm talking to are people, you know, I think are well-meaning and have a, a very high view of the Bible and they regard it as the inspired word of God and that there's no inconsistencies in it. And so, I would just say, okay, well, here it's pretty clear, you know, I can, it says, for God cast off no one forever. And so then they'll have to make the argument, oh, well, what you have to do is you have to look at the context or look at this or look at that. And then I say, exactly. Okay, so basically what you're telling me is sometimes the first impression that you have of a text is not really the best understanding of the text. And that's what we're all facing. Everybody that enters the theological ring has to do battle with texts that on the face of it don't seem to support their argument. So mm-hmm. as a universalist, I'm not unlike any other Christian theologian who has some texts that go very well in my favor. And then I have other texts that, at least on the face of it, seem to go against my position. But that's going to happen if you take a Calvinist position. That's also going to happen if you take an Arminian position. That's just... That's just the cost of get everybody who gets into the theological arena gets dirty, you know, and nobody comes out clean <laughs> with regard to scripture. Yeah, and um, there's two more things I'd say about this text is I know that sometimes people they might accuse you and me, David, of saying that we're taking this out of context, that God is speaking specifically of Israel. But I'd say, you know, that's not true. I think that um as you read in the passage it says, For no one is cast off from the Lord. So it's it's using this universal truth to expound upon this particular truth. So it'd be like if I said, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, right? In order to establish the truth that um, Socrates is mortal, I have to show that Socrates is a man and that all men are mortal. And so when Lamentation is saying, for no one is cast off from the Lord, well, if no one is cast off from the Lord, then neither is Israel, right? So no, I'm not taking this passage out of context. And I'd say that this passage actually reminds me of um, a story from 2 Samuel 14, with the woman of Tekoa who appears yeah. before, right? And yeah. I love this. She appeared before King David. And she says this, she says that we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. I just love that. And so the idea that uh, I had a pastor who told me that when God sends people into the wilderness, right? 
it's ultimately to bring them out of it. So I think of people like Moses, who he spent his time in the wilderness, but he was eventually brought out. Mm-hmm. The people of Israel spent 40 years, but they were eventually brought out. So that time of exclusion is ultimately meant to bring those people back into the embrace of God in the human community. Well, and Paul even talks about uh, somebody who was handed over to Satan, mm-hmm. you know, for the salvation, oh, yeah. Yeah. for their ultimate, you know, for their ultimate salvation. And so in in Paul's thinking, you know, Satan can even be plays a role in in helping people to come to their senses. Or Romans eleven thirty two, where Paul says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all, right? Is that the why God consigned people was so that he could demonstrate mercy to the individual. It's like when, for example, a child misbehaves is uh, the worst punishment for me, David because I was a social animal, was being sent to my bedroom as a kid. Right? I mm-hmm. hated that. But I was consigned to my bedroom, consigned to disobedience right, for a time, so that my, I might learn the lesson, right, so that I might rejoin the human community. And just as we see that God is doing that with Israel, I believe that that's what God will do with all persons, David, is that God consigns people to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them in the end. All right, let's continue on. Uh, this is, I think, the last section of uh, Piper that we'll respond to. He says, here's an analogy that I said I would give to help perhaps make this a little more intelligible. This comes from the life of George Washington. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote The Life of George Washington and tells the story that there was a certain Major Andre who had committed treason and put the new American Republic at risk. George Washington signed Andre's death warrant. He's about to be executed. And John Marshall comments in his biography, perhaps on no occasion of his life did the commander-in-chief obey with more reluctance the stern mandates of duty and policy. Two wills were operating in Washington, compassion and justice. One commentator on Washington's decision said, Washington's volition to sign the death warrant of Andre did not arise from the fact that his compassion was slight or feigned, unreal, but from the fact that it was rationally counterpoised by a complex of superior judgments, of wisdom, duty, patriotism, and moral indignation. Then he adds, the pity was real, but was restrained by superior elements of motive. Washington had official and bodily power to discharge the criminal, but he had no sanctions in his own wisdom and justice to do it. Similarly, I would say the absence of a volition in God to save does not necessarily imply the absence of compassion. It's real. That willing in God, that desiring in God is real. The fact that there are two wills in God points to a profound but complex unity in revealing aspects of God's nature that are both true and both real. In our own experience, we may feel them as conflicting or as frustrating, but I think it would be rash to say that God experiences his compassion and the justice of his wrath that way. They are harmonious in God. He reveals them both to us so that we can get some true glimpse of what God is really like. Uh, So what do you think about those remarks? (laughs) Well, David, just to begin with, I would say that the flaws in such a line of argumentation are profound. (laughs) If God and Washington are comparable, as this analogy assumes, then God would have predetermined and ensured that Andre carry out his crime. Given Calvinism's denial of libertarian freedom, or at least John Piper's version of Calvinism, Andre would not have been able to have done other than commit his crime. Additionally, whereas Washington was accountable to the Continental Congress and his country, to whom is God accountable? 
If God's compassion towards the reprobate is genuine, and if there are no limitations to his will, why can he not simply pardon the reprobate? Washington never offered Andre a pardon, which he aberrantly rejected, nor was Andre, quote, one among a group of other traitors who had performed similarly heinous actions, but who were graciously pardoned while he was condemned. That, however, is precisely the situation with the damned. They are no better and no worse than other sinners who are pardoned and spared the fate of eternal misery. If Washington had singled Andre out among other equally treacherous persons, the claim that he felt genuine sorrow and compassion for him would lose all credibility, end quote. Piper's view of grace means that God possesses the ability to prevent an individual from continuing in sin and unbelief. Washington possessed no such ability, but if he did, if he could, quote, control Andre in such a way that he would have become a patriot for whom treason would have been unthinkable and yet refrain from doing so, then again the claim that he had profound compassion for Andre and was pained at signing his death warrant would ring hollow, end quote. Piper's analogy loses its force on determinist premises. I would like instead to offer more apt analogy for Piper's two wheels approach. Imagine that I ran a small summer camp for children, and you, David, entrust your child to me. At okay. the camp, <laughs> well, you're not going to like this turn, David. Uh-oh. At the at the camp, a fatal disease breaks out, afflicting all the children. But I manage to get my hands on the antidote. However, I only use the antidote on a small number of children, your son excluded. You know all this and rail against me. Why didn't you give him the antidote? I respond, you have to understand. I loved your son. I stayed up every night at his bedside, holding his hand, feeding him, taking him for walks, whispering kind things in his ear. So you see, in giving him all these material blessings, I demonstrated my genuine heartfelt love for your son. (laughs) What a strange love. What a strange word love becomes when wielded by the Calvinist. There is also the question of justice. Some Christians insist that God is just, but has no moral obligations. This is quite simply ridiculous. To be just is not to break your moral obligations. But if God has no such obligations, then this would be to say that God breaks none of his moral obligations because he has no moral obligations. If this were true, then there is no action that God's doing such would make him unjust. He could do anything to us and still be morally praiseworthy, still be just. The reasons for assuming God has no moral obligations are, in my view, unconvincing. But even if it were true that God had no moral obligations, it is a common understanding of justice that a magistrate ought to treat like cases alike. If two persons are both totally depraved, and God raises one up to maximal joy and the other to maximal punishment, this would be the ultimate act of disparagement and injustice. And yet, this is exactly what John Piper is arguing for. Not only does God fail to treat like cases alike, but he treats them enormously different. Well, when uh, when I was thinking about this analogy with uh, George Washington, I thought the analogy fails because George Washington did not make Major Andre and was not finally in charge of Major Andre's ultimate destiny. And I got to thinking that George Washington also, in this case, did not follow Jesus' command to do good to his enemies, to not resist the evil person, that George Washington did not, did not follow the Sermon on the Mount, and he caused a destruction and a trauma for himself and for Major Andre. But God, on the other hand, has a plan for the fullness of time to heal and restore George Washington and Major Andre, and finally, 
everybody. And so I just imagine, you know, like George Washington and Major Andre together, finally, and like, you know, God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. You know, I can imagine George Washington saying, you know, I shouldn't really, I shouldn't have done this and this and this and this. And Major Andre saying, well, really, I shouldn't have done this and this and this and, th- you know, and this and this. We, in a way, we were both, we were both deluded. But, you know, thank God that, that that disobedience, that God let us fall into that so that we could learn these lessons. And now here we are in eternity and we're eternal brothers and friends and we can forgive each other and we can leave all that in the past. No, yeah, I mean, I think this analogy is terrible. It's funny because I had a Calvinist friend back in undergrad who he actually read this small book uh, from John Piper. And uh, he was struggling with the Reformed tradition and Reformed theology. And uh, he read this book and he said that it solved all his problems for him. (laughs) So so then I I proceeded to to lovingly critique some of them. I just think this is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, imagine what we're saying here. Let's say that along with Andre, there's David Artman, right, who existed at that time during the Uh Revolutionary War. And David Andre commits the exact same crime to the T as Andre, right? David Artman. David Artman. David Artman. Yeah, David David Artman is a Benedict Arnold back then. And uh, he, he commits the exact same crime as Major Andre. And Washington's sitting there with Major Andre and, and telling him like how much this is irking him I and mean, how much he truly feels for Major Andre. And then uh, the next day, Washington goes and pardons David Artman. <laughs> you know, he's treating like cases completely unlike. And we'd have to wonder, why is it that he's doing this? What are his reasons for doing so? And the reasons ultimately the Calvinists give, as we'll later discuss, for why God treats like cases so unlike are, as far as I can see, just rather unpersuasive and diabolical. I mean, what we're saying here is that if this is truly analogous, that Washington could have made Andre the best of patriots, right? He could have made him most freely, as the Westminster says, he could most freely have made him a great patriot for our nation. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he brings about the result of Major Andre being executed, I would not say that's real pity. I would not say that compassion that's real compassion. I would say that if we ever met a person like that in real life, that we would do well to stay away from that person. Because if that's how they love other persons, then I don't know I either don't know what love is or I want nothing to do with love. Right. So I well, think this, this is actually me. a rather harmful uh, analogy. Well, this to me is why, you know, theology, some people say, Oh, you know, theology, it's just this um, you know, high order conversation that's so far up in the clouds, you know, it doesn't have any real application. But we talked earlier about moral intuition. And if the view that you have of God, the way that you make sense of the world, that moral intuition is going to spill out mm-hmm. into real, real life actions. And so, I mean, this is one of the reasons I'm so interested in Christian universalism is because to me it aligns people's moral intuitions, their best moral intuitions with their highest values, with their greatest view of God, with the with the teachings of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount and all of those things. And when you line all of that up, you get people that don't make deci- the decision that George Washington made, which um, I think was an unfortunate 
an unfortunate one, understandable in his day and time and the way people think, but that's just the way people were thinking back then. But in, you know, in his mind, he was doing, George Washington thought he was doing uh, the exactly right thing. And and that probably went with some different ideas he may have had about God and what the meaning and purpose of life and all those kinds of things are. Yeah, I mean, the more and more that you get into defenses of particularism in the Reformed tradition, the more and more you start to feel like you don't know what words mean anymore, right? Like you don't know what freedom means anymore. You don't know what love means anymore. You don't know what compassion means anymore. You don't know what justice means anymore. You don't know what sovereignty means anymore. It's it's like you're operating with a completely different dictionary than most other people. And you know, some people are content with that. Other people, they feel like they are bound by their moral intuitions, that if George Washington had the ability to make Major Andre most freely, the greatest of patriots, and instead he brought about conditions that were sufficient to bring about his execution, that's not real pity. That's not real friendship or compassion. And we would not want such an individual to be our friend, right? So uh, I think this is important, David, on many aspects, because I see that um, how harmful this is to certain individuals. It reminds me of John Piper, where he was in debate with Tom Talbot, and he said, it was amazing. He said that um, he prays over his sons every night, and he knows that it might be that God has not chosen his sons for God's sons. But I, I'm just a pot, right? And he's the potter, and I will not rail against the Almighty. Well, I'm sorry, but the prophets in the Old Testament constantly did, right? When when they thought that God was acting unjustly, they stood in the gap. They spoke up. They said, no, this is not right. And in many cases, they proved to be right. I mean, you have Job, for example, who tells his friends that, no, I mean, this vision that you're giving me of God is wrong. Right? It's just not right. And God, in the end, eventually vindicates Job and tells other friends, you were in the wrong. And sad to say, I think the same is true of the vision that John Piper holds, is that this vision is wrong. It's speaking falsely of God. It's speaking of absolute injustice and that people should be free to appeal to their moral intuition and say, no, this is wrong. And I can promise you, David, that on the last day that God will say, you were right. That is wrong. That was unjust. (laughs) Well, I also thought it was funny that in that illustration that John Piper prays for his children, not knowing if they are of the elect, but that omits the possibility that John Piper himself is not one of the elect Mm. because he has not yet uh, persevered to the end. And it's impossible for even John Piper, as committed as he is, to know if he will absolutely, with 100%, persevere to the end, because you can't know that. I think even Augustine said that that nobody can know if they will persevere persevere till the end until they actually until they actually do it. Yeah, the analogy I often use here is um, imagine if you were married to this wonderful woman, as I hope you are, and um, that you're newly wed and everything's great. And then uh, you have your best friend approach you and say, hey, David, I have something to tell you. You know, that person that you're married to, well, she's been married several times before. And uh, in all those times, she's actually cheated on her husband. She's stolen from them. She's did this. And she talked the exact same way to all of them. You know how, oh, I love you so much. Oh, you're the greatest in my life. You're the only one in my life. I think you would begin to wonder, gee, I wonder if she's doing this to me, right? If she's done this with others, I wonder if she's doing it to me. And that's exactly what you should think on Calvinism, is if God has determined for people to falsely believe that they're believers, for people to have false assurance of faith, you should wonder if he's done the exact same thing to you. How can you trust and worship a being like that is the question that for me was 
a breaking one for the particularistic form of Calvinism. Right. Yeah. So I think that John Piper should said, I pray for my children, you know, lest they not be among the lick. And I pray for myself that I am not self-deceived mm-hmm. and that I haven't just convinced myself that I'm one of the elect. You know, that would that would mean to be more in line with, I think, a, a classic Calvinist kind of statement. Well, speaking of uh, classic uh, Calvinism, let me just kind of ask you to, I don't know, from 60,000 feet, kind of assess the whole Reformed tradition and, you know, Calvin's, uh, I mean, uh, John Piper's uh, ideas here, especially um, uh, with his overall theology of uh, reprobation and how that works and how he thinks reprobation may magnify God and not be inconsistent with God's multiple internal wills and all of those types of things. So <laughs> just kind of give us, you know, kind of a wrap up on um, on Reformed theology or Calvinism from your perspective. Sure. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to split this up into two parts. Is One, I'm going to examine John Piper specifically, right? It, as far as I can see, do I see any inconsistencies or tensions in John Piper's specific overall theology, when he incorporates incorporates reprobation. And then I want to address, is the reason John Piper offers for why God reprobates that he may magnify his wrath and his grace ultimately persuasive? So let's start with the first one, is does reprobation being incorporated into John Piper's overall theology produce tensions or inconsistencies? And I think that is exactly what happens. So the Westminster Confession famously posed the question, what is is the chief end of man, and answered, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper, however, in his wonderful book, Desiring God, altered the confession's answer such that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Yet I'm afraid I must press, is this the chief end of every man or just the elect? Piper goes on to say, quote, but is it loving for God to exalt his own glory? Yes, it is. And there are several ways to see this truth clearly. One way is to ponder this sentence. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Therefore, God's pursuit of his own glory is not at odds with my joy. And that means it is not unkind or unmerciful or unloving for him to seek his glory. End quote. While there is much to commend in this statement, Piper leaves us with an irresolvable, irresolvable conundrum. If God's love is not at odds with our satisfaction, then the more we are satisfied, the more God's love shapes and transforms us, bestowing upon us joy and happiness, the more God is glorified. If this is so, if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, then why must God damn by passing over any of his creatures to glorify himself if he is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. D.A. Carson, a Calvinist brother whom I deeply admire, once confessed, quote, When I have preached or lectured in reform circles, I have often been asked the question, Do you feel free to tell unbelievers that God loves them? End quote. Notice that Carson acknowledges this is a question he is often asked by those in reform circles. There is nothing unusual about this. In fact, it is entirely natural for one within the Calvinist system to question whether or not delivering such a pronouncement is justifiable. Yet Carson matter-of-factly responds, quote, Of course I tell the unconverted that God loves them, end quote. I am somewhat puzzled by Carson's answer, given the logic of Calvinism. 
If Carson honestly owned his systematics, his answer would be more akin to the following, quote, I do not know whether or not you are one of the elect that God loves with his particular effective selective love. For all I know, God has chosen to pass you by rather than give you his irresistible grace, which you need to be saved. If so, you are headed for eternal hell and there is no possibility you can be saved. Still, God loves you because he has provided food and water for you to eat and rain to grow your garden. Also, God shows you his love by inviting you to accept Jesus, even though it will be impossible for you to accept the invitation if you are not one of the unconditionally elect. End quote. If Carson spoke honestly like this, who would take him seriously? Moreover, the title for Carson's book, where he addresses the question whether he tells the lost that God loves them, is The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God revealing that Calvinists like Carson struggle with making sense of the love of God in light of their systematic theology. Ascribing to God the attribution of love seems to be something that Calvinists reluctantly and awkwardly offer up, not truly knowing how to fit this misnomer into their doctrines of grace. Take John I'm gonna, Calvin. I, okay, I'm gonna, I'll just let me, I won't let you continue on there, but I wanna, just want to insert this. <laughs> I got to see a first edition copy of Calvin's Institutes. And it was in a, you know, it was in a library and, and it was a special gathering and they allowed us to actually, they opened the case and they allowed us to actually, you know, hold it and look at it. And so in the back of Calvin's Institutes, there's a big, long scripture index. And so you can see every scripture that he uses in Calvin's Institutes and First John 4, 8 is not in there. <laughs> that, that was God exactly is, what I was just about to say. <laughs> oh, Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, say, in the Westminster edition of his Institutes, a lengthy 500-page treatment and more, Calvin cites many verses. The index to his Institutes consists of nearly 39 pages with three columns of scripture references in small print. (laughs) Yet, never once does he cite 1 John 4, 8 or 16, which says God is love. Same thing. Not once. Isn't that interesting? Rather, oh, it's it's amazing. I remember talking to Jerry Walls when I interviewed him a couple of years ago, and he said he found that absolutely telling, as do I. Rather than attempting to explain such passages away, Calvin ignores them altogether. Calvin isn't alone in the Reformed tradition, however, when it comes to ignoring this clear attestation of Scripture. Louis Burkhoff also composed a complete systematic theology with the omission of these two verses. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a Calvinistic doctrinal statement is composed of questions and answers in relation to key Christian doctrines and concepts. Question four, the shorter catechism asks, what is God? Right. Immediately, one calls to mind 1 John 4, 8, God <laughs> <Right>. is love. <laughs> Yet, the shorter catechism answers, quote, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, end quote. Where is the mention of love in this confession? How could one ever answer this question whilst leaving out one of the most foundational, if not the foundational truth, concerning God's essential nature? Many Calvinists attempt to argue from common grace the notion that God holds a generally loving disposition towards all men. Yet can such a provisional grace be measured against 1 Corinthians 13's definition of love and still be defined as loving? This is what 1 Corinthians... Uh, if uh, this is what First Corinthians uh, goes to, on to say. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice that Paul says here that love is not merely being able to do or know all things, nor does it involve merely giving gifts and showing kindness to the weak and poor. Thus bestowing gifts like rain and sunshine apart from love amounts to nothing. What therefore is the true nature of love? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. To those Calvinists who hold that God loves the reprobate in some ways, but the elect in all ways, we must ask just how loving is God according to the Calvinistic worldview? Is his treatment of the reprobate truly loving according to God's own definition of love given by his apostle? How is God patient or kind with those whom he reprobates prior to them being born or having done anything good or bad, as Calvinists interpret Romans 9.11? Is God not easily angered towards the reprobate who were born hardened from birth without hope of redemption? Does his love toward the reprobate fail? What manner of love is this? Lest one should think this is a crude caricature of Calvinism, hear for yourself the words of John Calvin, quote, God shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than an entrance into life. For Christ is made known and held out to the view of all, but the elect alone are they whose eyes he opens, that they may seek him by faith, end quote. The invitation is utterly meaningless. It is no better than inviting a blind man to a party by holding up an invitation card in front of his face and saying, here's the invitation, you're invited, feel free to drop by. The blind man can't see, so he can't, cannot read the invitation, and thus he cannot respond to it. Would we call such an invitation where the host refuses to read the invitation or to guide the blind man to the destination, but merely holds up the invitation, a bona fide offer of love? Calvin additionally writes, and get this, David, this is, this is really telling. He writes, quote, I at least maintain the teachings of Augustine, where God makes sheep out of wolves. He reforms them by a more powerful grace to subdue their hardness. Accordingly, God does not convert the obstinate because he does not manifest the more powerful grace, which is not lacking if he should please to offer it, end quote. What more needs to be said for one to realize that Calvin did not consider the offer of salvation, according to his systematics, a bona fide one, and neither should we. According to Calvin, God could transform wolves into sheep, and yet he does not. It is inevitable, therefore, that Calvinists would obfuscate the clear meaning of love to redefine it in a novel, idiosyncratic way. It seems, therefore, that Calvinists have hopefully equivocated on the meaning of love. What objectors to particularistic determinism mean by does God love the reprobate is, does God demonstrate agape love towards them? Does God will for the damned their highest good insofar as he can? Far from it. Moreover, one cannot embrace particularistic determinism and perfect being theism hand in hand. Being loving in its agape sense is an obvious great making property. We must then imagine two beings, Tom and Paul, one of whom loves all his creatures and one of whom loves only some. If such is the case, the former being would be greater in respect to this particular great-making property than the latter. Thus, the latter could not be God, that being that which none greater can be conceived, since he fails to maximally exhibit this great-making property. Accordingly, Calvinists who claim that God loves only the elect must either reject perfect being theology or accept that they worship a being who is not truly God.
So that's the well, first part. <laughs> well, I like that, that that when you said that God is a great as a being which none greater can be conceived. And that was really started what started the problem in my theology. I wasn't on the Calvinist side of things. I was on the uh, my God was sort of an, a really strong Arminian idea that God would save everybody that's savable, but there's some that might not be savable. And then once I really started looking at that again, and David Bentley Hart and Thomas Talbot and others helped me to take another look at that, that I realized that I could conceive of a greater God. And once I could conceive of a greater God, then the the God, the, the picture I had before of God just had to fall. I didn't try to make it happen. It just did. It just, it just disintegrated. And, and so my new view of God is a God, which is a being, and I can't conceive any greater being than the God who would call us forth out of nothing for the purpose of right, raising us, deifying us to the very divine life of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in Trinitarian union and joy, and that that's the ultimate, that's our ultimate destiny. Once I got that picture, well, there was nothing that could threaten that picture of God because that's the greatest possible being that can be conceived. No, yeah. I mean, I think that Calvinism, as far as it embraces particularism, is not compatible with perfect being theism since love is a great making property. And it would be greater if God had love for all his creatures than if God only had love for some. Now, it's important to point out, David, that um, I have found Calvinists, and I quote in my book, who don't think that God loves all persons. So the arguments I'm making really only work for those who think that God is a perfect being and who think that God loves all persons. So th I would just say that your their definition of love is inadequate. But there are Calvinists like John Owen and Jonathan Edwards and uh, David Hegelsma who have said that God does not love all persons. In fact, I remember reading Arthur W. Pink. I remember the page. It was I think it was page 113 where he says, when we say that God is sovereign in the exercise of his love, we mean that God chooses whom he shall love. God does not love everybody. Now, I want to thank him for his honesty. I really do, right? Because this is where the debate really lies between particularistic Calvinists, right, and many who are not Calvinists, is does God love all persons? And at least this individual had the courage to say, no, he does not. He does not love all persons. And I think that's true. I think that as far as you embrace particularistic determinism, it would be like, David, if I wanted to perform fatal experiments on human test subjects. So what do I do? Well, I go out and get these test subjects and, um, you know, I, I give them a home and I give them a gym, you know, and I take care of them as they mature and grow up and make sure they're, that they're nourished and they go to the gym. But this is also that can perform these fatal experiments on them. Now, if you knew this, who in the right mind would say that that is love, right? Absolutely not. And so you have this one tradition that says God does not love all persons. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, quite frankly, I think that's absolutely unbiblical. But then for, furthermore, I think it's malformative for biblical practice. So I remember when I was very much reformed, David, is I had this problem that I started to think, you know, my system seems to say that God doesn't love all persons. And the idea was, well, if God doesn't love them, then why should I? Right? And mm -hmm. why should I hope for every person's um, salvation if in this sense? So 
God, obviously, as far as I thought, hasn't elected all persons. So let's take David, for example. I know that God hasn't elected all persons, and I don't know if God has elected David. So if hoping that God has elected David, and it turns out that God has not elected David, I am going against God's will, right? Because God hasn't elected David, but I'm hoping that David is elected. So rather than hoping that David is elected, I should be agnostic right, about the issue. I should say, well, I don't know if God's elected David for sure, so I can't hope for it or not hope for it. I'll just have to play things out. That is extremely unbiblical, right? Goes against the grain of 1 Timothy uh, 2.4. And then also it leads, I think, to other problems where you have something like Michael Servetus, where um, Michael Servetus was, of course, burned at the stake. And and one individual observed it said, this makes sense because the cruel God that Calvin worshipped. And we right. see that uh, later horrors were justified by this system. And so I think right. that he was, this and he wasn't can be malformative. The, he wasn't just burned at the stake. He was in Calvin's Geneva. He was burned at the stake. Exactly. It, was Cal, it was Calvin who was behind it. Yeah. I mean, there are historians who debate how much involvement Sean Calvin held in it. I think that he was involved, although I, he is, I still have great respect for John Calvin. So it still irks me that this happened. But all I'm saying is, David, is that I think that people need to consider the consequences that particularistic Calvinism can have on their daily lives. Think about your children, for example, the love that you have for your children. Do do I love my child more than God does? I remember, for example, with the love of my mother for me, that was a problem for me where I thought, you know, it seems like my mom would do anything, right, to, to ensure my salvation, but the God of Calvinism doesn't. I thought my mom surely seems more loving than him. And so I think that the problem of love is just an enormous one for particularistic Calvinism. And I think that eventually that's what did it in for me, and it might do it in for others. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking your time to— uh, oh, Did you want to... me to do the second part? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have a, sec- you have a second one. Go on. Sure. So um, that's the first part is having to do with love. Now comes the question about reprobation. Okay. Why must God reprobate? So Piper and other Calvinists assert that the reason, or one of the reasons, why God does not elect all persons to final salvation is because, quote, the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory and wrath and mercy and the humbling of man so he enjoys giving all credit to God for his salvation, end quote. Piper's comments resemble Calvin, who taught that the reprobate, quote, having given over to this depravity because they have been raised up by the just but inscrutable judgment of God to show forth his glory in their condemnation, end quote. If God does not save all persons so that he can be glorified in the demonstration of his retributive justice, one must ask, is the act of reprobation itself a demonstration of God's justice, or is reprobation a necessary precondition uh, for a consequent divine act that demonstrates God's justice? If it is reprobation itself, one wonders how God's choosing to create persons who he will pass by, though he could effortlessly save them, should he so choose, is a demonstration of justice. Since the damned do not exist when God reprobates them, and thus have not committed any crimes worthy of punishment, reprobation, a Calvinist might say, should be categorized as a demonstration of God's sovereignty as opposed to his justice. Reprobation provides the opportunity for God's justice to be manifest by punishing sinners, or so we are told. In other words, reprobation is a divine act whereby God refrains from treating like cases alike, as all persons are totally depraved. Zachary Manus pushes back on this clean differentiation between reprobations being a demonstration of divine sovereignty and not justice by positing whether the act of reprobation itself is just. There are only three options on the table. 
reprobation is unjust, in which case Christian orthodoxy is set aside. It is just. How does this comport with God's not treating like cases alike, though, we might wonder? Or it is morally neutral. Exactly how decreeing the eternal suffering of a conscious being could possibly be a morally neutral action is beyond me. Given the examined relevant facts, it seems more than apparent that were God to reprobate a single person, it would be an unjust act. And since God does not, indeed cannot perform unjust actions, God does not reprobate so much as a single person. Moreover, in order for something to be demonstrated by one person to another, certain background beliefs need to obtain in the latter individual. If Paul takes Amy out on a date, all the while courteously opening the door for her, paying the check, flattering her, etc., Sally uh, might think that such actions were a demonstration of Paul's gentleman-like character. However, if Sally knew that Paul had talked to her friend about the best way to get Sally's guard down so that he could sleep with her, Sally would be rightfully suspicious of his intentions. His actions would be demonstrating vice, not virtue, lust, not love. Similarly, whether or not God's punishment of the reprobate succeeds in demonstrating his justice depends to no small degree on the background beliefs of the respective witnesses. For the Calvinists, the relevant background beliefs consist of the knowledge that God created the damned, whom he could turn to himself most freely to punish them. How one could hold this background belief and perceive God's punishment of the damned as just is truly a mystery. Nor does it help to say that while appearing unjust, God's action is actually just, for a manifestation consists of a discernible display to the observer. In this case, however, God will be manifesting, or making known, an attribute, namely justice, that the creature cannot and does not know to be as such. If the purpose of God's supposed display of justice in the punishment of the damned is for the saints to perceive and praise it, then the saints must be able to perceive God's judgment as evidently just. Since they do not, all they can perceive is an act of sheer power. If God's demonstration of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate is not itself necessary, if he could have instead gathered every last soul to himself, why did he not do so? Even if one should identify a relative good in God's decree of reprobation, surely such a good is outweighed by the greater evil necessary to bring it about. These few considerations should give Piper and other Calvinists pause before insisting upon a demonstration of divine justice as the reason for God's decree of reprobation. Okay. Well, now you have given your... <laughs> you're, you're overall, my case has rested your honor <laughs> yes yeah yes you you have rested you have rested your case well i i am really excited about your journey and your ongoing scholarship your how far along are you in your master's of theology at princeton theological seminary i'm halfway through so fingers crossed to finish strong <laughs> well um i'm excited for you and i'm enjoying um uh, going along and watching you uh, go through your ongoing theological education. And I know that I'm pulling for you and a lot of us are that you'll continue on uh, to the PhD level. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking forward to uh, your thoughts and your, and your, your comments and uh, your intuitions and your, your ability to make uh, interesting analogies <laughs> <laughs> for us to, uh, for us to ponder and to uh, think about. So uh, I guess in uh, closing up here, I, I would like to thank our uh, podcast listener, Austin Tinsley for requesting this uh, episode. And I'd like to thank you, Andrew Hironich for being a great conversation partner uh, to help us to, uh, 
uh, to think better about all these things. So thank you again very much. Thank you for giving me the excuse to talk about the Princess Bride in terms of theology. (laughs) Okay, I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.